Welcome to the Talking With Tech Podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Madel. But Rachel, it's not just you and me today. We have a special guest here participating in our in our banter. Chris, this is my other half, as our mom likes to call us. <laughs> I have my twin brother here, Matt Madel. Hey, everyone. Good to be with you. <laughs> How's it going, Matt? Now, Matt, you and I go way back. We've way we back. met... <laughs> We met, I guess, Rachel, it's got to be close to four four years ago now. Um, actually, the same night I met Rachel in person is when I met you in person. That's right. I mean, we had dinner at uh, a restaurant in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, that's where we met because I was on the East Coast visiting my family. I mean, many of our listeners know I'm from Pennsylvania. And you made the trek up from Virginia and we met and then I was like, well, my brother, my brother's out and about. Do you want to meet my brother? Yeah, absolutely. That was a great night. We got to meet you, got to meet your brother. And so Matt, tell us a little bit about you. I mean, everyone's going to be curious. Who are you? What do you do? Yeah. So, um, yeah, Rachel's twin brother. Um, I work in finance, so I'm a portfolio manager. We manage, uh, client assets. Uh, I specifically work with institutions. So endowments, foundations, nonprofits, um, so it's interesting because Rachel and I kind of have different brains, if you will. I'm, I'm more quantitatively oriented. Rachel is everything else. So, um, but yeah, I li- live in Philadelphia, um, with my girlfriend, Paulina and, uh, you know, big, big Eagles fan, big sports fan. So that, that, that's really the center of my attention outside of the, the financial world. And, uh, yeah, that, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> And now you're here in uh, in Hawaii on vacation. What kind of stuff have you done? Uh, I mean, uh, I'm a big outdoorsman. I left that out of my uh, my bio, but um, grew, grew up as a Boy Scout and um, spent a lot of time outside. And so, obviously, being in Hawaii, we've we've been doing a lot of those things. Uh, we were in Kauai for the first what five days, and uh, we did a lot of hiking. Uh, we did a boat tour of the Nepali coast after we had hiked it the day prior. Uh, we haven't been surfing yet. We are going to go surfing. Um, but I'm expecting to be a natural just because of how athletic I am. Um, <laughs> Rachel's laughing because she probably thinks the opposite, but yeah, I think, I think we're going to go surfing today or tomorrow. So there haven't been waves, Chris. So I was like super excited to bring them out and have them surf, but you know, there just haven't been waves. So we're hoping for a little baby swell to come in and, uh, take them out on the boards. Uh, let me ask you, I mean, as a, as a brother, sister team here, I know that you have done hiking trips before. Is that fair? Like you've been to Montana. Am I thinking that right? Am I, where else? What else have you, have you done together? Yeah. So we do, it's kind of not happening as much anymore, but we used to do a twin trip. So every year we would pick a different national park to go to and we do some hiking and camping and we've been to Montana. We've been to Zion. Uh, we've been to Glacier in Montana. Um, what are the other parks that we've been to? Olympic national park in Washington state. Uh, what's the one we did in Canada? Uh, Banff. Banff. Yeah. We've been to Banff. Um, so yeah, we've, We've we've done a lot actually, and so I was excited to have him come out to Hawaii. This is the furthest you've ever been away from Pennsylvania, yeah. Yeah, um, never been on a flight that took what fourteen hours. So uh, it's a long journey. Fly a lot for work, but uh, n- never that far. So it was uh, a nice a nice shock to be on a plane for that long. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it sounds like you're having a blast. Um, so Matt, so when you get back. 
Uh, so right back to Philadelphia and back to the, 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 this is your vacation, right? Yeah. Uh, landing, landing on Sunday morning at 7am off the red eye and, uh, going back to work the next day. So that should be fun. Uh, <laughs> mark markets have been a whirlwind, uh, the last several months. So I've been staying on top of it, uh, while I'm on vacation, but I'm expecting a lot of, uh, discussions with clients and, um, yeah, so it should be fun. Fantastic. All right. I have a question for you, Matt, from a technology standpoint, uh, is the world, is your world blowing up with AI like our world is? Um, are you talking about artificial intelligence, chat GPT? What kind of technologies do you use in your profession? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really been the talk of the town. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think you're immune depending on what line of business you work in. Cause obviously I think, uh, it's going to be a big part of the future. Um, I think, you know, from our perspective, it's it's certainly going to have a place. And I think finance is one of the areas where it already did have a place. You just it, it just wasn't as mainstream as, you know, something like chat GPT has made it become. And so I would say it's it's going to move uh, the, the ball further down this, the field to use a sports analogy. Um but the, the, the technology is very fascinating. I mean, I've been using it to just, there, there's a lot of processes that we do that sometimes can be automated. And I, the, the most interesting application that I found of chat GPT so far has been to ask the tool to write me code to do a specific task. And then I can take that code and embed it in whether, whether it's an Excel workbook or like a Python script, it's, it's just wild. And, uh, I'm very interested to see how it develops going forward. Yeah, that's amazing. That's Rachel. I have a story. We're speaking about ChatGPT. So as Matt, so when we split in utero, he took the quantitative brain and I took the qualitative and he always helps me with accounting, my taxes, all of these things that have to do with numbers and money. And when he got here, it just so happened that my accountant sent my corporate tax return. So I'm like, hey, can you look this over, Matt? And so he pulls up chat GPT and I don't know what you put in, but he asked some type of question about California corporate tax. And he, yeah, we got a lot of answers about like what my tax rate was and what the calculation should have been. And so he uses it as like a a, a check on my taxes. Yeah. I mean, I just asked, I asked it what the core, the corporate tax rate for S corps in California was. And then I took her, you know, taxable income and I just did a rough calculation and I said, it looks loosely accurate. So yeah. <laughs> it literally happened like a couple of days ago. <laughs> it's like it, you checked your work, right? And you check somebody else's work with it verified. You feel more confident. Right? Well, it's, it's, perfect. Funny. it's funny. Cause I used like my first job out of college and, and I, you know, I, I had an uh, accounting focus in college. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm familiar with that world, but not to the extent that, you know, a, a tax accountant would be. So it's funny. Like I, I know the right things to look at and the information that I need, but I don't have that, that depth of knowledge that a tax accountant would. So, you know, using chat GPT to kind of bridge the gap is a perfect example of, I think the, the power of the technology. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's actually what the interview is today is um, I had the great pleasure of talking to someone named Bruce Alter out in Oregon, who has been doing a lot of research around uh, AI and chat GPT. And we talk about all about that in relation to 
education and people with disabilities. And so before we jump into that interview, though, um, as twins, is there any phenomenon that you've experienced as, uh, you know, like twin speak or anything like that from a language perspective or beyond where some sort of, you know, strange psychic connection where Rachel's out in Hawaii and I'm in Philadelphia and we both had a Philly cheesesteak at the same time, you know, those two, I mean, one, two, you know, like that kind of phenomena. Uh, there, there have been times when, you know, I'll be you know, picking up my phone to text her and we haven't spoken in weeks and she'll be texting me or vice versa. I think my mom always tells an interesting story. And obviously we, I think neither of us have a recollection of this given how young we were, but um, we had to both get, I, I guess, a, a, a booster shot or a, a vaccine or some, of some type when we were uh, needles <laughs> infants. And uh, so my, my dad took my sister in to get stuck with the needle and I was sitting in the car and my mom said, I just started randomly crying out of nowhere. And then the, my dad walks out with her and I was crying. He's like, what's wrong with him? And I guess, you know, I basically just started crying like right when she had gotten stuck with the needle. So it was just interesting to think about. And what's interesting is that my dad says he watched me get the needle and I didn't cry right away. And he said it was the weirdest thing. And so then they shared the stories of like, you know, and I think it was it wasn't that you were in the car, you were in the waiting room. And so my dad heard my brother crying in the waiting room before he heard me start crying. That's amazing. I didn't say anything from a language perspective that you can think of or not really. You know, I've asked my mom and dad, did we have any type of twin, you know, language going on? And I feel like they haven't told me anything. I also feel like the recollection of us as children is, is fading. Um, but yeah, there was nothing like that, that that I know of, but I'll share a story really quickly. I, so up until we went to school, he was the only real kid that I had exposure to. Like I, we didn't, we weren't the kind of family that had tons of kids over at our house and play dates. It was really just like, it was him. Like he was my best friend and you know, if I was playing, like I was playing with him. And so when we went to kindergarten, as they often do with twins, they separated us into separate classrooms. And I'll never forget getting off the bus and one teacher taking Matt and another teacher taking me and me for the first time in my life being like, where's he going? Like, why am I not going with him? And I was so upset. I probably cried. I'm sure I cried. Um, and I'll never forget. So I spent the whole day without him wondering what he was doing and where he was. And then we came back together on the bus and I sat down next to him and I was so happy to be next to him again, to be reunited. Uh, it was a, it was a traumatic experience because up until that point in our lives, like we had never been separated really. Um, so yeah, that's a fun story to share. Well, just like getting off the plane and coming into Hawaii, reunited again uh, for your vacation. So uh, thanks for Matt for coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit about who you are and your perspectives on on uh, ChatGPT and AI and sharing these Rachel stories and, uh, and twin stories. It's been a blast. Absolutely glad to be here. So I guess, Rachel, with that, we'll roll into my interview with Bruce Alter. Do you love this podcast? We would love for you to take a second and leave us a review on iTunes. That way more people can find this podcast and learn how to support individuals using AAC. 
We also love hearing from our listeners. It reminds us that all of the hard work we put into this podcast really matters. And don't forget to subscribe so you always know when we release new podcasts. Now let's head back into the episode. Welcome to the Talking With Tech podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and today I'm here with Bruce Alter. Bruce, am I saying your name right? <laughs> you did a great job. <laughs> Thanks. All right, Bruce. So um, we know each other a little bit through some assistive technology circles, but I don't know that we have spent a lot of time together. Is that sort of fair to say? Yeah, I, I know you by name and reputation and occasional emails uh, with Gail Bowser uh, <laughs> as the uh, intermediate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly how I feel like we know each other. But so so tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and uh, tell us about yourself. So I'm a pediatric physical therapist, but before that I was a geek. I've been involved with uh, computers as long as they've been available, going back to like the mini mainframe and punch card era. I've been a computer programmer. We had a business made the first uh, computerized IEP program probably in the country, taught me a lot about um, what it's like trying to sell a product to school districts. Um, and so the reason why I mentioned that is I, I went into pediatric PT because I wanted to work with children. And right from the start, I worked in um, school districts. I've also done early intervention, which is working with babies and early childhood special ed. But um, when the iPad came out, I proposed to many of my districts that there was a way to provide assistive technology support to the majority of their students who were in special ed, which were those who had reading problems with learning disabilities. And there was a way to do it with consumer tech. And I proposed uh, to both the Woodburn and Tiger Tualatin district where I work that we could do a lot to improve kids' abilities to read and write if we used technology. Prior to that, assistive tech was thought of as doing switch programs for kids with cerebral palsy, which is fine. And I did a lot of that, but um, I should mention, I, I, am, I have dyslexia. I also have ADHD. It's interesting and not that uncommon a combination I'm finding in kids I work with. So I was a struggling reader all through school, uh, uh, took five years to graduate high school, flunked out of college twice, so I have a very checkered academic career. And the only thing that allowed me to get through my professional education was I asked my grandfather to buy me an Apple. My parents had already spent enough money on me. I asked him to buy me an Apple IIe because I told him if people see my handwriting and spelling, I'll never get past the application process. And it was technology that allowed me to manage the rigors of physical therapy program. Text-to-speech became a little more available. I was using an NEC I guess called a laptop, but it was basically a, a a device with a tiny LED screen and a keyboard. And that's how I took my notes in school. No, this was in the 80s. No one had ever seen that before. So why am I saying all this stuff? I have a personal stake in this. I also have an experience of what it's like being the kid in class where everyone else is somehow understanding what's going on and able to write and spell and uh, and just having no clue on how they were able to do that or how um, uh, to succeed myself. And 
one day I woke up and I realized that I had become the person that I needed <laughs> with the tech that wasn't available, but, but back then. So um, what I'm doing now is for, for the last 35 years, I provided both physical therapy services and then in the last uh, more than 10 years, uh, assistive technology services to uh, the Tiger Tualatin district in Oregon, which is a large district, and Woodburn, which is a smaller rural district. And we've gone from basically nothing to kids having one-to-one -one devices. Uh, I mean, I could list all the stuff we've accomplished, but I'll let you get a word in edgewise. But that's how I got to this. And it's a really good place right now. Uh, where we're seeing success, where teachers are starting to understand about the need for accessible materials, even if they don't know how to provide them. Um, it, it's a big change from how it was even 10 years ago. Okay, there, I talked enough. Well, Bruce, let me just comment on some of that. It really sounds like you have both um, a personal experience that has grown into a professional experience that uh, using technology can really transform the learning experience. And what I really appreciate about how you put the experience of teachers, contemporary teachers, is that they're starting to use this technology with that capacity in mind, because sometimes I get a little frustrated that we haven't moved fast enough, you know, like there's still uh, my own kids are in high school right now, and it's still a lot of paper pencil hasn't redesigned a lot of memorization tasks, um, stuff that I think when I was in school and maybe when you were in school, it certainly sounds like it was we weren't using the technology to to really redesign the learning experience. It was still doing it sort of the old same way, not reshaping the the educational experience. Is that and I, and I say that as a precursor because I know where this conversation is going with the evolution in uh, in the technology we're going to talk about here. Yes, that, that is right. And it's even more than that. There was a backlash um, after uh, distance learning or uh, uh, after the schools reopened. So in Oregon, um, our governor closed the schools due to COVID. And um, maybe I'm alive today because of that. People forget that we didn't have vaccines. We had really little understanding of protection. But I'll, I'll set that aside for a second. I spent that time making, you know, I think now I, I'm over 150 videos, but making videos to help teachers understand how to use the technology that they went from not knowing at all to having to use the district uh, brought in Canvas as a as a learning uh, management platform, which was new to everybody. But most of them did it. We used to have office hours, uh, virtual office hours, and people would come in to ask questions and we'd solve things and make short videos. So they were using it. And many of us thought, all right, we finally, we're, we're going to have accessible, yes, accessible materials. <laughs> and I'll tell you, my AAC users, it was the, uh, COVID's horrible, not being at school is horrible. It was the best opportunity they've ever had to talk. And I've asked a couple of AAC researchers to look into that for me. What happened is people on Zoom or Google Meet, the kids learned that you had to be quiet and only one person could talk at a time or the teacher would silence them all. And so our kids who were AAC users for the very first time were able to get more than one word out without 
someone changing the topic or being interrupted. It was fabulous. See, again, it was a horrible time, but seeing the student, the parent, you know, would set up the laptop and having the student answer a question, which would take them a minute or so, but everyone had to be quiet. And we got to see how functional many of our kids were in that environment. So after that, when people went back to school, there's been a backlash. I have had teachers tell me, our kids are already spending too much time in front of screens. We're going to go back to paper and pencil. And, and we try to explain gently and then maybe a little more forcefully that that's not going to work for all the students. And the student who needs assistive tech is going to feel uncomfortable using it if the other kids aren't using the educational technology that's similar or the same. So we have actually had a backlash where it's become um, a little more difficult to integrate technology because many teachers don't want any part of it after their experience of doing uh, distance learning. Well, Bruce, I just want to say, again, not really knowing each other that well, and you being on the West Coast and me being <laughs> on the East Coast have very parallel experiences. I remember um, just how you described it. Uh, we're all in emergency distance learning, uh, and there was no, there was a great boon for accessibility. I know the team that I work with did more trainings with more educators, more general educators than ever before. And it felt like this is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Everyone's going to know how to do this stuff now. We've been yelling this and screaming this and and it, it's been individual use cases where people have then grown. But this is like we can do it so much more, so much faster. The, the videos you're describing are exactly what we created as well. And then uh, with one little caveat, I should say, I did have some um, of my ed tech uh, co uh, compatriots say, Chris, you're really focusing, you and your whole team is focusing on accessibility, which is great. We know you need that. We know we've needed that. Don't also forget that you can create something that's accessible and it's still a terrible experience. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you're right. You're right. Like, and the analogy he used was um, you can write this great sentence that is grammatically correct and it can still say awful things in that sentence. You got to think about the quality of what you're producing as well. And it's like, yes, right. Let's, let's make sure we add that into our trainings. But that's just a little side note because then it, the, the same experience you're describing this, this move to get back, we got to get back to the classroom. I'm putting that in air quotes. Get back. It's like, what are we getting back to? It wasn't that great of an experience in the first place. Let's move forward with what we learned and bring that with us back. When we do go into the, go return to that in-person learning experience, let's hold on to all the good that we learned. Like you said, AEC users and learning how to wait for them, you know, um, working with communication partners more. Uh, that's another thing we saw is that, well, I, I might not be able to work directly with this person, this, this student during in through the screen, but I could work with the person sitting next to that student and give them strategies. And so let's not lose that. Let's keep that. But it does seem like there was this rubber band effect that brought us back to the way we were. It, it, it is. And I mean, there's other manifestations of it. So all the tech went home with the kids at Chromebooks and iPads went home with them. Districts provided hotspots for families who didn't have the resources for Wi-Fi or, or there were some uh, low cost options. And now the devices are not going home and, you know, depending on the grade and, and the district, the devices are not going home. We have to do an exemption for a student to take their iPad home who needs text-to-speech support. It's not hard to get, but it's a it's a big difference between the assumption that everybody has this stuff at home. And I noticed we had a snow day. The, the, the saying was, 
there will be no snow days. We'll just go to virtual. Well, no one go uh, in Oregon. People, well, let me just speak. There is one district that did it, but most districts are like snow day because the, the Chromebooks are on the cart mm-hmm. in the schools. So we can't uh, do uh, distance learning. Now, all of this is really a preface to the real reason we're here today is that you've done some work around chat GPT and AI. And so, I mean, I saw some of the work that you produced uh, that, again, when you mentioned Gail Bowser that uh, was in the quiet listserv, I think you had shared it. Uh, And um, I, of course, am fascinated with chat GPT and AI. Here's what I'm finding, though, Bruce, uh, and I feel like we need to spend a second sort of discussing what it is, because even yesterday um, I was talking to a principal and I was like, you know, you, you could throw that into ChatGPT and I could saw her eyes sort of blank over and I was like, wait a second, you don't know what that is. And she's like, no, what is it? And I was like, okay, let me, I would show you, but it's blocked. So, you know, when you get home, go ahead and try it. So let's just take a second for anyone listening. Now, there could be people that listen to this podcast um, I, that have heard me sort of uh, share it with Rachel for the first time and the first time Rachel Saad, who's the, um, Rachel's the, yeah, okay, the the co-host of this podcast. Um, So if you've been listening to the podcast, you have a little familiarity, but they haven't heard you describe it, Bruce. So can you describe what chat GPT is and what AI is in general? I will, but let me start with a William Gibson quote, and I think this relates to the principle. It is, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Right. Um, So I've been interested in artificial intelligence going back, if you have any really old listeners to Lisp, which was one of the first languages where we were attempting to build what was called expert systems. Expert systems where you would find a human being who did something really well and you try to figure out what their thought process was and then duplicate that in software. I got into physical therapy school because I was trying to build an expert system to uh, categorize back pain. And uh, it so happened that the director, I mentioned that to someone in passing because I was trying anything I could to get an, a, a leg uh, to get in the door. And oh, our director's really interested in back pain. And I met with him and he spent an hour with me and gave me uh, sheets of diagnostic categories and all that. Never got it working, but it did get me in school. So artificial intelligence has gone through a lot of phases. I won't go through the history of it, but people have been trying since the beginning of the computer age to write programs to do things like play chess or other things that require decision-making and or mimic human capabilities. And it wasn't uh, in the chat GPT video I put together, I compare what's going with how we need to manage chat GPT and chess. But let me talk a little bit about how we got to chat GPT. So AI got, there was a lot of math developed, there were a lot of procedures developed, but the hardware was not available to be able to do the type of number crunching required to actually uh, even mimic uh, higher level decision making. That has gradually changed and the hardware became better, but our way of programming it wasn't working. And one of the things that emerged was what's called machine learning. And what allowed that to happen is massive amounts of data being readily available, primarily through the internet. If you want If you wanted to, in the past, if you wanted to train 
uh, an application on how to figure out uh, what's the good price for a home in a given area, you would have to go through listings and you'd write a routine. Well, okay, if it's in, if there's a good school and there's a solid tax base, and then now what you would do is you would feed millions of data points about that into uh, a machine learning application. It would use statistics, mathematics, matrix algebra to pull out of there some rules that only the system knew. And that's a vital thing to understand that in most machine learning, there's a black box where the machine learning algorithms make a determination based on, on weighting certain uh, items as to how a decision's made. And then there's different types of machine learning. Again, won't go into that. All right, so machine learning allowed us to have software that it's not programming itself, but it's coming up with, so it's not refining itself, but it's taking the data and applying analysis to it and coming up with information that we can't see because we can't amass that much data in our head. What ChatGPT does, it's, it's in a category of what's called large language models and GPT is generative pre-trained transformer. So it generates things, it's pre-trained in that it's not going to the internet and looking at current stuff. It's looking, the cutoff for ChatGPT4 even is, 19, is, is 2021. And, and what it's doing, what ChatGPT does is it's looked at so much human language books, uh, postings, uh, all kinds of uh, listings on website, et cetera. The company OpenAI is not completely open with what training data they use, but um, it, it's a lot. And it's applying that into what's called um, a deep neural network. And if you, it's not really like neurons on the brain, but basically what's happening is there's an input, which is the language. There's an output, which is the, um, uh, the words that it puts. And in between is this massive amount of processing that's looking statistically at if you have a given word or a given set of words, what word would come next? So it's not that ChatGPT understands language, but what it will do is use an amazing amount of statistical analysis to determine which words make sense in a given sequence based on the prompt that was put in or the prior prompt. And then it, it will refine itself. There's a place where users can say whether you got what you wanted or not. So how, how does this look in practice? So um, when OpenAI released ChatGPT in November to the public, previous their previous product was DALI which is a, uh, an AI arts application where you put in a sentence about something and it generates a photograph, a drawing, whatever you put in. We should talk about its role for children with disabilities to do artwork. Um, but then they released ChatGPT and that's a language-based um, uh, output. So you put in a prompt like, Actually, uh, Luis from CAST, I was showing him some stuff and he said, well, how about a science? Of course, it's Luis. How about a, a fourth grade science lessons that incorporates UDL principles? Right. You can hear that, right? Totally. And, <laughs> and it generated a, a water cycle 
science lesson and included things on, on uh, different means of representation and the, the usual UDL principles, but it actually spit that out. And it did that because it doesn't understand any of that, but it's had so many words and sentences and paragraphs put in that it knows how to order language to give you a coherent output. And so you can you can ask it just about anything within the limits of if you try to ask about Nazis or other stuff, it's it's going to kick that out. Thankfully, they do have some filters in place, but you can ask it something. You can even ask uh, in the style of, and it will output, and it'll output a paragraph, it'll output an essay, it'll provide references, um, and then you can refine it so you can have a dialogue with it. So you have, you start, I think they call it a conversation. I think it's a conversation. If you're on the same conversation, I actually had it argue with me. Um, th these models are prone to what's called hallucinations where they'll just make something up, but it looks convincing and has references that don't, or, or people that don't exist. My wife does traditional Japanese flower arranging, ikibana, and she was writing something up and she said, well, ask it about this glaze, this specific glaze. So I did, and it talked about how it was developed in America and who the people, and she says, no, it was developed in China. And it was in, so I said, well, tell me about the glaze being developed in China. And it came back and says, as I said previously, this glaze was developed. In, um, but uh, what we're, so, you know, I've given you some, again, I'm going to let you get a word in edgewise, but what we're looking at, we have never had available before. In the entire history of AI, we haven't even come close to something like this being available. I was going to say to the general public, but I would say, period. We are seeing an explosion of, of, AI that is capable of using large data sets to train itself. I didn't go into to, um, DeepMind and their AlphaGo and all the other stuff, but we're, we're seeing AI do things that was never possible before because of the machine learning paradigm and incredible hardware, uh, you know, unaffordable to any, any of us. You can't do this on your PC or your Mac, but, um, it's it's out there. Bruce, let me try and describe it in a way, and you tell me if you feel like this is fair or not. Um, people in the world would be would recognize the term word prediction, right? And especially people that listen to this podcast, you know, as I, uh, you know, a lot of people probably didn't think of it until it became, <laughs> you and I know about word prediction because of our background, but most people are like, oh, I didn't think of word prediction until I started texting. And then it would give me suggestions. And now it's in my email, or I guess Google, just doing a Google search is probably where first most people first experienced it. Oh, look, it's predicting what I, I don't have to type it all in. And then it went to your Outlook or your Gmail. And this is just, not just, that's not the right word, but this is sort of a souped up word prediction. Is that fair? It's like the computer is generating words based on word prediction. I, I Sort of? So, well, is a, is a Volkswagen the same as a Lamborghini? I mean, they're they're... They're cars. Uh, okay, so they, they're both things that run on on computers. So I'll, I'll I'll grant you that. But this is this is something different. 
with word prediction, you you could there are rules that it's using to generate what words it thinks. And you can actually, if you play like with the text help one, which doesn't learn from you or with Siri, which is, or with uh, some of the um, Apple products, which like if, you know, first time you put an IEP, it has no idea. And then it starts to, when you put in the wrong letter, it corrects it for you. There are some pretty structured rules and you could, you could trace 100% through the the procedures and you could say okay if i put this in i know what's going to come out mm-hmm. um with chat gpt there are these so many hidden layers to what's going on uh, that's what really makes it different we don't know how it's deciding we know in general it's using statistics and matrix algebra and i mean you could describe the math but we don't know why it decided to put a given word in. We do. We have a pretty good idea with word prediction. ChatGPT is at a totally uh, different level, and not just in its capacity, but in the, the way it works. Right, so the Don Johnston company, um, they're, uh, they have a text simplification engine in, uh, what's their product called again? Oh, this is uh, Snap and Read. Uh, snap and Read. So they have a text. And what that does is it looks at like word length and it'll try to use shorter words and, and there's some grammatical rules. And I, I, I did a project for a, a curriculum company and I, this was, this was like six months ago. And I said, we're five years away from automatic text leveling based on the current research. Well, chat GPT, you can say, rewrite this paragraph at Lexile level 200 or explain quantum mechanics to a kindergartner or, and it will, it doesn't just do it by making the word shorter or trying to change how many words in a sentence. It does it by using conceptual language that's appropriate for that age level. So we are really looking, I understand the desire to try to compare it to something we're comfortable with, but this is beyond souped up word prediction, I think. Right. It's my attempt to hook it to someone's background knowledge, but really it is, uh, it's a whole new thing. Uh, it's way more than souped up word prediction, right? Because I think if I, uh, let me just try and digest a little bit what you said there is if I went to the text help word prediction or even what's built into my, uh, Google or, or co-writer, um, if I typed a sentence and it predicted it had a word or two words, it's always going to predict those same words. But if I went to ChatGPT and I said, hey, tell me about this sort of flower arranging and the glaze that you put on it, and I asked that same exact prompt, it's going to come up with different responses each time. Like the generative, uh, they might be close, but it'll be different. And, and and like you said, way more layers than that, because that's just only one aspect. I can't do coding. Uh, I can't do predictive coding with um, with uh, text help. You know what I mean? But ChatGPT, I can do coding, right? And then it it um, the similar version is I can't do um, text to image. And ChatGPT doesn't yet do that. I don't know. ChatGPT four is going to do that, right? But um, I haven't seen that yet. I've seen Dolly do that. So right. it is much more than just that. It's just my some sort of attempt to say, here's something that you could hook to. I, and, I, and I appreciate that. And we all need that to try to make sense of things. But I think there's a point where you have to say this is a discontinuity. And we're looking at something because society needs to understand what we're looking at. And I want to relate this to something you were 
we should get together. I think we, I think we would be really close friends. If we lived in the same city. I got to spend more time with you. But can I say we should have a beer together sometime? <laughs> Sounds great, um, Bruce. But what you were saying earlier, so schools have not made. I used to. I remember when I first started working in schools, I was like, "Geez, if Abraham Lincoln was here, he'd recognize everything that was going on." Now that was earlier, before a lot of assistive tech. Schools have not made the adjustment to the changes in society. Uh, if you want to learn how something works, you don't read a manual. Most stuff doesn't come with manual. You go to YouTube and you watch a video. But in schools, we're still heavily text-based. We're still heavily writing-based. We're still heavily rote memory-based. We're teaching what can be easily tested. Now, you're getting the perspective of someone who's had a miserable time in school. And for I love teachers. I was going to be a teacher until I figured out I could be a PT and work with kids. That's not a slight on them, but it is the system. Schools uh, have not made the adjustment to what's going on outside of the, the building. And this is going to push it even more. So there's a knee-jerk response on many districts to ban chat GPT. As you mentioned, Mm-hmm. It'll it'll write computer code. I, I, in fact, I tried that. I have uh, our Arduino board, and uh, I said, write a program in C to blink this specific light on the Arduino board. And in ten seconds, it did, and it was fully commented code. And I, you know, I didn't run it through, but I I did a reading through it, and because I know what it should look like, and it was correct. Or you can write something in Python. You can do that. You can write an essay at a certain grade level on a certain topic. Okay, so then the question is. If you, if you can, let's say with calculator. Okay, so before there were calculators, a certain amount of skill in mathematics was essential. And that's still true in the lower grades. I couldn't learn my multiplication tables, but I could learn to use a slide ruler. I'm looking because I have them in a drawer over there. And the teacher didn't know what a slide, how a slide ruler works, so she thought it was pretty advanced. So she let me use that on the, the test. But people have gradually brought technology in. And as a result, kids are able to do things at a higher level than they were previously. But in many cases, the school doesn't examine the underlying assumptions between what they're teaching, when they're teaching it, and how they're determining a student's understanding of it. And I think ChatGPT is going to really shake up writing. Uh, when, when, can, I, can I comment yeah, here? Yeah, please, please. Again, I so appreciate uh, your positive outlook here, because I am afraid that it won't. <laughs> and let me explain <laughs> that the the my why I have evidence to back up my claim is that I had that same thought when the internet came out. Oh my goodness! Now we don't have to focus on rote memorization. We can go get answers in different places, and we can have rich discussions about what those answers might mean and the implications. And largely, it's still a place you go find information and come back to. It's uh, and think about it from an assessment point of view. In many cases, we're talking: uh, can we lock people out uh, so that we can take an assessment without the internet? And education has not made the jump to. Again, large, we're making large, I'm making a large sweeping statement here, hasn't said, well, let me fundamentally change what we do. It's let's kind of ban it. And then the second thing that I would or or put real structured limits on it. Um, And the second evidence piece of evidence that I would throw into this um, claim here is mobile technology. Middle schools across the nation 
No, you, you take that phone and you put it in your locker and it doesn't come out. And I know you need to have it because your parents say they want it with you, but in case there's an emergency, but otherwise it goes into the thing on the back of my door. That's called the mobile jail, mobile phone jail cell. You know, that's exactly what it's called in some places. And again, there's a, instead of, again, there are places that do it and there are teachers that do it really well. Again, no slight on them, but again, I really, how you like how you put it it's the system but these are evidence that this is technology that i thought i thought was going to transform things about how we did how we approached the learning process and it didn't and so now I'm a, I'm a little bit afraid that again here we see chat gpt and ai going yes this is going to transform education and the system itself will squash it you know it'll and i like i said my school district currently bans it i bet you most school districts do and which i think is okay until we figure out how to actually implement it but i'm afraid that in many cases it'll just be that was the answer ban it move on let's go here's your paper-based assessment uh get back to memorizing spitting it back out and passing a test all right that was my rant tell me what you think <laughs> no it's a reasonable rant I, and i i thought the same thing i'm like now we need to teach people instead of how to remember information we need to teach them frameworks so they know how to phrase questions correctly and how to utilize the information that they get and how to be good consumers of it and you're right we haven't made that change i think this one's I think this one's going to be different. Maybe so. I'm wrong on so, that. <laughs> and part of the reason why I've tried to get ahead of it and why I was so adamant in talking to my districts about it before people even knew what it was, because I didn't want them to ban it, because it offers the best writing tools yet for our kids with disabilities who have, uh, imagine a student with an intellectual disability um if they could if they could uh dictate a simple prompt they could produce a paragraph they could listen even if the, it's above their reading level they could listen to it they could comment on it they could refine it same thing with artwork imagine aac users who could actually participate in a conversation if their devices heard the conversation around and then used uh, a, a, a large language model that was based on utterances they've done before to generate a series of responses that they could choose with a single keystroke. They could finally be part of a conversation. So I, I have a lot of dreams for it. But the reason that's why I, I did and in one of my districts in Tigard, I approached them. I met with the head of teaching and learning and he had me meet with IT. I have connections with all of them because I've been there for a while and, and they're really into serving the student needs. I've brought in, I brought in a blind student to the IT department to demonstrate what he does so they could understand how well their infrastructure was doing at supporting all our kids. And actually he's now a tech assistant at one of the schools is <laughs> a blind kid. They tell the, when someone has an Apple question, they ask him, because he knows how to use all their hardware. Uh, but the point is, the IT director already issued a statement saying she's not going to ban it. She's not going to block it. And we have a committee that we're starting to meet after the spring. We've already been formulating guidance as to when chat GPT can be used as a tool. Teachers giving clear expectations as to when it can and can't be used. Students having to attribute when they used AI tools, having to provide the prompts that they use to generate the material. Uh, I mean, a whole host of, of other things and I'm basing some of that on things I've thought about, but there's also guidance coming out of like Berkeley and 
some of the major universities mostly. And then JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, had an article on non-human authors and what their guidelines were for that. So the idea was to try to get ahead of this so schools wouldn't just ban it. And the reason for that is twofold. The first, near and dear to my heart, is uh, I've got so many kids with disabilities that would finally be able to produce some writing that's in their voice and, and is substantial. I have AAC users who would be able to do a lot more um, than they can now, like produce artwork with Dolly if, if we went that direction. But I don't think I don't think schools are going to be able to shut this one down. Uh, it's going to have it's going to have too big an impact on society. There is an exception. That's we'll have to see what the lawyers do with Section 230, and that's probably for another conversation. But there's there was a lawfare article and podcast on will Section 230, the Internet uh, Protection Act, will that will that cover content generated by Chat GPT? And it, it looks like it won't. And if that's the case, then we might see this massive just collapse because uh, smaller companies aren't going to get involved and monetize it because they're at risk getting sued. Let me ignore that I said that for a minute. Let's go with the big dream. So we, we now have the ability for to really expand what what people are capable of doing. You were talking about but, computer code. I'm talking about computer code. I'm talking about quality of writing. I mean, I use Grammarly. I, I already told you I use spell check, word prediction, and I use text to speech. Otherwise, I, I make tremendous amount of word errors in my own writing because I don't, because of my reading issues. I use Grammarly constantly now. Those are that's an AI tool and it improves the quality of my writing, allows me to function as an adult. What the schools need to think about is when it's appropriate to use these tools, and they need to do a deep dive into um, the development of writing skills and consider at what stage, even providing spell check. When do you provide spell check for a kid? At what point, right? And, and let's set aside the kids with disabilities who are going to use this as assistive technology supports that we're going to provide it whenever they need it. But for a typical student, developmentally, when do you provide spell check? When do you provide grammar check? When do you provide word prediction. It's been really haphazard. And then when do you allow use of AI uh, generative tools? Mm -hmm. So schools are going to need to come up with that because they can say they're banning it, but all they're going to do is, is cause inequity. The kids that have mobile technology, you know, can slip into a bathroom or whatever, or the kids who have Wi-Fi at home versus those who don't will be able to do much higher quality assignments. So, the, so banning is not the solution. It's a knee-jerk response, as is putting, I went to a building principal one time, and it, again, I know these people for a long time, so maybe I can get away with a little more, and I pointed at the all electronics off and away, it's a middle school, and I said, how well would you function if you followed that? And he said, I couldn't function at all. I said, so if you if your laptop, which he was carrying, was in a drawer, he said, I, I wouldn't be, I said, I know they're behavioral issues. It's an oversimplification, but it's a question of do you, and this relates to what we were just talking about. Do you block something or do you teach someone to use it well? Mm -hmm. Do you do you deny using the tools that are available to the larger society because we're going to do it the way we've always done it? Or do you teach kids how to how to do their own research to figure out if what they're seeing on the internet is true? Obviously, we've got a big issue with that as a society. 
with with these rise of conspiracy theories and unquestioned assumptions. A certain percent of the population is going to believe that, but can we help the, our kids in school be good consumers of information and and good users of available technology? Will a tool enable them, or will it will it disable them? Will it add to their capabilities, or will it make a, a skill disappear? I can't do long division in my, on paper anymore, but I'm okay with that. A calculator's replaced it. I don't think that's necessarily, of course, I asked that question of a group of teachers and like, they can still do it. And it's like, how many of you are math teachers? Okay. Exactly. <laughs> but, but you have to kind of choose your battles. Is there a tool where if you over rely on it, it's going to decrease your capacity or will it be fine at this stage, like Grammarly is fine at this stage in my life. It's actually improving my writing, but it wouldn't be so good if you're trying to teach basic rules of grammar to a student because it would just automatically correct stuff. They wouldn't have a chance to see their own mistakes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we have to think about. Bruce, let me get your impression on this. One of the things that does give me hope that the long-term implications here will not be to ban it, but to let's let's go with the optimistic view that um, that education adopts it and does exactly what you just described as we utilize it and we teach it and we help people write better prompts and know what to ask it and and have a conversation with it to get a better outcome and then evaluate those results and all of the good things that we're talking about. One thing that gives me hope that that will happen is that some of the big ed tech companies, the largest players in the world, Microsoft, Google, um, are integrating it into their tools. So it's not so much about blocking one website. Yeah, we're not using ChatGPT, but it being infused into other tools. So what are you going to do? You're going to block the Google Docs? You know what I mean? Are you going to block um, Microsoft Word? You know. So what are your thoughts about the big ed tech companies integrating this sort of technology into their into their fold? I'm telling you, I think we share a brain. That's exactly... <laughs> That's exactly the point. That's why I said this is bigger. I guess the internet was plenty big, but do you, but this is bigger than something you can just block because of exactly what you said. When uh, OpenAI, um, I think in March 1st, they added a monetization policy. And there's a lot of, I mean, if you're a programmer, you'd understand it, but basically there's a certain amount of tokens that are utilized per prompt and that has to be paid to open AI, but now companies are allowed to charge. So unless the section 230 comes up, yes, we're going to see that. I've already seen um, ChatGPT in incorporated into a, an extension for Google Sheets. Um, and there's automatic formula generation, you know, instead of you having to know, let's see, equal sign, uh, open parenthesis, whatever the formula is, you can just say, I want all these numbers added up or give me the, the mean and standard deviation of this group of data, and it'll do it without you having to understand that. So yes, and automatic sentence uh, fill is coming in, in Google Docs. I think it's being rolled out. There's, I think it's a premium tool, or maybe it's for Google Workspace, but I've been getting announcements that they're rolling out some of this. So it, it is, it is unstoppable. We have to teach people how to use it correctly. We can't. 
yeah, we can't, we can't just, we can't stop it. We also have to, we also have to think in terms of what kind of fields we're, we're helping students get ready for. Like I'm, I'm no longer thinking that coding is a good uh, field for, uh, I used to really push in Woodburn for them to do coding programs because there's a lot of, uh, a lot of kids that come from, uh, I mean, they're disadvantaged families, but that's a way up. I was at a, a uh, Amazon presentation on their automatic code generation tools or machine learning uh, platform. And one of the questions came up, well, what should I be studying? So I have a job in the future. And the, the panel said prompt generation and because mm-hmm. they demonstrated how you could generate a completely functional computer code, HTML or, or, or um, Python by just putting in the right prompt and it would generate uh, all the code you need. So you have to understand the concepts. But I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of wandering here. Go ahead. You wanted to. Well, I want to. Here's here's what I'm thinking. In order for educators to help wrap their brains around how they could help learners use it. Um, uh, sorry, I'm I'm having a second just contemplating the uh, the evolution of computer science. But let me um, and coding because I do so much work in that area. Uh, with robots and helping young kids and AAC users use it. So what you just said is sort of blowing my mind for a second. So I just need to think about, yeah, right. It does make sense. Like that skill is becoming obsolete. It's the next skill about uh, that. That, But okay, but let me bring it back. To, so I just needed to reflect on that for a second. Let me bring it back to how do we help educators learn how to use it with students and with uh with learners and what we we what if you go back and listen to this podcast i think you and i just brainstormed you especially brainstormed a bunch of different uses cases usage cases <laughs> usage cases for students one way that we could help educators bridge that gap is if they learn how to use it for their own productivity purposes. Why can I use Google Docs and know how to use it with kids? It's because I use Google Docs for my own productivity. And so I know some of the tips and tricks. Does that is that fair? So what I think maybe what I let's just brainstorm for a second. Teacher first learns about ChatGPT. What are some ways they might be able to use it for their own productivity? So if if I can steer your listeners to another podcast, there's the podcast Cult of Pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the most recent or the one previous. They had some researchers on it was on how teachers can use chat GPT to generate examples. And there's a S there's a an article that goes along uh, with it. And and they gave the example like you need five when you're trying to teach a concept to kids, you need a lot of examples so they can kind of understand and you need counterexamples. So you need to understand what it is and what it is. And then they gave the example of like kinetic or potential energy. And you can say to chat GPT, give me fourth grade, give me five fourth grade examples of kinetic energy. And it'll like a you know, waterfall or whatever things it's going to list. How about potential energy, you know, a car up on a hill. And and what they did was give a process for that specific task, because that's something that teachers have to do all the time. And you can do it with literature, compare uh, something, and I'm not gonna, I'm no expert in any of this stuff, but compare something written by Shakespeare to something written by some other author. And you can have it generate examples of things that are written in like Shakespeare's voice or another author's voice so, so kids can do it. So it can be as something as specific as science or 
uh, a little more abstract, uh, like concepts or literature. And I think that's a good entry point. I'm I'm trying to chunk that down into an article for the folks in Woodburn who haven't, there's so much going on, people don't have the bandwidth, they're not seeing it as an issue yet, but I'm, I'm hoping again to find a way in. And that that's something that teachers could immediately use. They could sign up for an account and they could say, I need five things that are read. That's an oversimplification, but still they, teachers spend a lot of time trying to figure these type of examples out. Well, I think that's an excellent inroad there because, I mean, I, I, I already pictured the title of the professional learning, like is um, increase your productivity uh, with with AI or something like that. Or maybe that's even a little too intimidating. Just five ways to produce, five ways to increase your productivity. Like, oh my goodness, or make it easier to uh, provide samples or um, some, learn how to summarize text and and get out of school, don't stay as late after school, you know, like these are problems that educators have and they would show them how it improves their life. And then by extension, they would go, okay, now how can, how this, how can I use this to improve my students' lives? Well, imagine you're teaching grammar. Imagine you're teaching a foreign language, you know, you are, so for grammar, you could uh, give five sample sentences, example sentences that use a particular Part of grammar use five, uh, five that use it incorrectly, and and then and then the teacher goes through them and determines whether they're correct or not and uses them and it would be a big time saver and and also expand on maybe what the teacher thinks of as as examples. But that's such an important teaching method. I think there's a lot of areas. Uh, I mean, you could also find what's wrong with this sentence. Mm-hmm. kind of thing and chat gpt could generate the sentences for you yeah amazing great ideas so all right so people listen to this podcast now we're closing in on an hour and they're like i'm in bruce chris i'm in i want to try it what sort of advice do you give people when they're first experiencing chat gpt or ai in general the first thing to remember is it's not a human being you're not talking to a human being and as I said before, I think it is important to realize that what you're looking at is the result of, of math and, and statistical analysis. So even if it, something sounds good, uh, it, it may not be. So if you're going to use it with your students, research it. But the first thing that most people discover, what I found is that people have not used ChatGPT have an overly simplistic idea of what the prompts are. It takes a lot to learn to write a good prompt. So if you start, and I, again, I think they're conversations. So you sign up for an account with ChatGPT. I don't think there's any, it took me like a three weeks before I got one. I think now pretty much you get in immediately. And I think there's a thing to start a conversation and there's a place to put in a prompt and you do that. So think of iteration. Don't get too hung up on it, but take something you're already familiar and knowledgeable about. So you can get a feel for what's coming out, if it makes sense or not. I, I practice the Japanese art of kendo and yaido. So there are two Japanese sword arts. So I'm pretty familiar with them and with the terminology. So I asked like, you know, what are the different types of kendo footwork? And, and so I could gauge that it was there, but it was like, okay, but that's not quite what I want. What are the different types of kendo footwork when you are doing this? So then I refined the prompt. What people need to discover is that writing a prompt is a good prompt is a skill. And so start 
and then continue the conversation and refine, put in the prompt again, but with some subtle changes and pay attention to what the output looks like. And over, so, so you might say, oh yeah, but this is for a fifth grade class. Okay, this principle for fifth grade and add that to it and see, yeah, but it's, it's um, but I need 500 words on it or I need, and see what it does. Ask it to put it in different lexile levels or for different grades. And think of this as a skill that, I think that's the mistake a lot of people made with the internet. They didn't realize that, that being able to do a good search, it's easier now because of all the AI Google's using, but to do a good search, well, so you do a search and you got, well, okay, those are ads. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Is that what I want? No. Okay. So I need to say in Portland so I can find the restaurant in Portland, not just the, the one that is paying the most for Google to advertise it. It's the same thing with doing um, generative uh, AI prompts. Spend the time, play with it. Think of it as a toy and play with what you're doing and pay attention, but definitely start with something you already know about because then you're going to know when it is hallucinating mm -hmm. and also check before you use anything, because you can say with references, blah, 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 with reference, check each reference. Some of them are made up. They look good. I mean, if you, m many of them are on the web, but some of them are from books. If you have a way to check to see if it's an actual legit, and if you can't verify it and it's, it's important that the references are accurate, don't use them. Mm -hmm. How's that? Was that too much? No, I think that's great advice. So uh, let me try and summarize it and tell me if this is right. So one, don't be afraid of it. Two, understand that you are going to, it's going to be something that's not going away. So we need to teach it. Three is um, it's a skill and skills develop over time. So you put the minutes in, you get better at it. Uh, four is start with something you're already familiar with so you can recognize when it's not quite right and that's because it, it'll sound very confident in itself but you'll know because you already have this uh some experience that it might be just a little off so it'll be like a little bit of a mirage right to see it there but it's not exactly right uh so 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 start with something you recognize and then five is know that it's a conversation. So it's uh, I, what I find is that uh, people might ask one prompt and that's it. But it's continue to refine over time and it'll get better and better and you'll get better and better. Those is that a good summary? Yes, I think th I think that's an excellent. I think that's a really excellent summary. Excellent, Bruce. All right. Well, so I like to end the interview with one last sort of question. You're clearly a curious person that has learned a lot about how they learn. Um, so let me ask, what are you curious about? What are you learning about now? What what's sort of what, what sort of question <laughs> you on besides AI? Maybe it is just AI, but beyond AI, what else you is peaking your brain? <laughs> if I turned off my screen, let me turn off my background. So there's I have, uh, let me turn off my background here, uh, none. All right, so there's, there, there, are, there are definitely disadvantages to having ADHD and um, a curious intellect, but, but there are advantages too. So if, well, all right, so, uh, you know, uh, I mentioned Yaido, so Japanese swordsmanship. I'm, I'm building a Lego uh, Bugatti. Oh, that's awesome. Car. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's it's like 6,300 parts. 
Um, you're, you're making me nervous just holding it. Like you're going to drop it in. A I know. <laughs> I know. I'm, I, I play with yo-yos. I play with chess. I do uh, magic. I've got a, a magic thing I'm working on now. You'll see linking rings and decks of cards. It's probably not very good for my attention span. Um, so I'm, it's sometimes I tell my wife, it's just easier for me to let my brain do it. Mm -hmm. It's like, I get interested in something and I'll try to struggle to not do it because I'm already doing too much. But I said, it's just, I, sometimes I just, it's just easier yeah. to you know, dive in. Bruce, just what you just showed me, uh, a link that I'm seeing with all of those is uh, some sort of motor activity, right? Either it's fine motor or gross motor with um, with the swords, but um, it seems like movement is a thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, that's, that's and it's probably self-regulatory. And also, um, most of the things involve some sort of flow mm -hmm. state because um, I am a, I am a meditator, but uh, my, my brain is... Uh, I have sometimes people say, oh, I wish I could, I could look inside your brain. I'm like, no, you, you don't want to, you don't want to see it's not, it's a very busy place, but yes. So um, something that causes me to focus is, is I think one of the universals uh, handling a sword and um, imagining an opponent in front of you or in Kendo where you're using a bamboo sword and you're wearing armor and you're actually getting hit are tremendously focusing for me so i think you made a good yes they involve motor and they also involve um, being able to focus on something for a couple of seconds at a time oh excellent excellent stuff well thank you so much bruce for sharing a little bit about yourself your brain and chat gpt and ai i'll tell you um i don't know uh i don't exactly know where you are in oregon when you describe it i i can tell you the at ties conference is coming up and i'll be there are you any chance it's in portland in april are you are you going to be there i will of course i'm on the otap uh, the advisory board for the conference yes so we're gonna we're gonna finally have that beer all right yeah actually i'll meet you in person that sounds like a plan all right thanks so much bruce good seeing you thank you